And the Christians arouse more than just suspicion. Another theme Luke repeats is how Paul and the Christians are constantly being accused of rebellion, even treason against Caesar, the Roman emperor. People heard Paul correctly. He was announcing that there's another king, Jesus. And they also correctly saw that the Christian way of life was a challenge to many Roman cultural values. But every time Paul gets arrested and interrogated before Roman officials, they don't see any threat and he's dismissed. These stories show us the paradox that the early church presented to the world. It was a Jewish messianic movement, but it was ethnically diverse, full of communities that treated men and women and rich and poor and slave and free all as equals. And they all gave their allegiance to King Jesus alone and no other God or king. And so their very existence, it turned upside down the core values of Roman culture, but the Christians posed no military threat because Jesus taught them to be people of peace. And so the only crime Paul and the Christians can be accused of is not conforming to the status quo. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 21 and going all the way through chapter 20, verse 1. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erasmus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing and some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? 
Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and, after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we uh, think about idols, or, or you know, b- both in like the terms of, of the little statues that they made back then and in terms of the things that we have made into our idols, we think of them uh, as, as things that are powerless. Just, you know, random objects that, that we have maybe assigned too much devotion to. And so when we think about how we sort of turn away from our idolatry, most of us think about um, internal things, right? How we alter our hearts, how we alter our desires. It's all about what we can do, and we believe it's all in our own power. But what if idols actually have a lot more power than we realize? Every idol requires a sacrifice. And with every sacrifice, you give the idol more power over you. Paul is in danger precisely because he challenges all the idols of the people around him. Right? That's, he's made his career so far of wandering around the Mediterranean and convincing people to abandon the idols they've devoted their lives to. And now the idols are striking back. So he's in the city of Ephesus, which is in western Turkey, very close to the coast. Turkey in that time is called Asia. So when you hear them talking about Asia and Asians, they're talking just about Turkey, or what we would call Turkey. And and all this talk of the idols striking back and controlling people, that's not metaphorical language, not for Paul, certainly. And it shouldn't be for us. There's something real going on there. When we turn away from our idols, they won't just let us go. They will try to reclaim us. This goddess Artemis, who's worshipped in the city of Ephesus, is this kind of a a mashup of a Greek fertility goddess and an Asian hunting goddess. And the the religious festivals that are used to worship her mostly take the form of massive wild orgies. So you've got two idols in play, really. You have the idol of money that is, that is controlling all of these silversmiths and craftsmen who are building little shrines to sell, and they're making tons and tons of money off it. But you also have the idol of sex that has enslaved all the worshipers of this goddess. See, that's what's really going on. There is an idol behind the statue. And with every idol, you can boil it down to really one of three things or some combination of them. Idols always end up being about money, sex, or power. Every time, it's either one of those three or it's some combination of them. Those things have an ability to control us that we really cannot truly comprehend. 
Now, it's not hard, I think, for most of us to look at the world around us and, and see how sex has been idolized in the modern world. It's everywhere. And if you want to really dig deep into it, for like the last 50 years, almost every hot-button issue in our culture has come down to, to issues with that exact idol right there. I could probably spend like two or three weeks preaching on just that, but it would make you all really uncomfortable. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is that, that, that most modern Christians don't struggle with that particular idol as badly as we might think. We're actually relatively good at spotting that one and figuring out ways to combat it and break its control over us. That doesn't mean we're immune, right? We've all watched in the news as, over the past several years as, as sexual scandals have rocked the Catholic Church and the Baptist Church and, and don't think that the Methodists don't have their own. But of those three, we're better at spotting that idol and limiting its power in our own individual lives at the very least. You, you break the power of, of sex over your life with things like chastity and devotion to the person you're married to. And, and, and we, we have, we've taught all those things for 2,000 years. We're, we're fairly well-versed in that. Money might be a different story. We are not nearly so good at, at spotting where we have idolized money and how it has claimed power over our lives. But let me tell you, if Christians did not have a problem with an idolatry of money, our churches would be a lot better off. If every Christian in America, or at least every person who came to church on a regular basis was actually tithing, churches would have enough money in the bank collectively to pay every college student's tuition and pay every American's hospital bills. If every person in a church on Sunday morning in America was actually tithing, the church in the United States could eliminate the two biggest sources of debt in our nation and set millions of people free from financial slavery. And we are nowhere close to that. Because in most churches, most people not only don't tithe, most people don't give at all. I have served in churches where the average person in that church gave less than $1 a week. Now the good news is, that's not you guys. <laughs> Y'all are doing pretty well. But money has a way of, of, of working its way into your heart and mind that is so subtle and insidious we often don't realize it. And I say this as someone who, who I, personally, I think this is one of the idolatries I struggle with the most. And when we think of, of idolizing money or, 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 or things like that, we, we tend to imagine sort of the, the filthy rich people, right? The people who have more money than they know what to do with, could never possibly spend it all, and they keep earning more. But the reality is, you can be dirt poor and still idolize money. Some of the cheapest, stingiest people I know idolize money precisely because they refuse to let it go. I have known people living in abject poverty who idolize money, and I have known people who are wealthier than I will ever be who are more generous than anyone I know because they don't idolize it. It's not about how much you have. It's about your attitude towards it. And the moment you begin putting your, your hope, your trust in your money versus in your God, 
you are making an idol out of your money. This is why Paul will say the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money is the root of all evil, the love of it is the root of all evil. He doesn't care if you have it. He cares if you trust more in your money than you do in your God. It's all around us. And to some extent, each and every one of us is battling with that idolatry. It's universal. And I think it always has been. I spent a month last fall preaching about the need to give to the church. And I'll say, one of the things I tried to hit on the most is that when I tell you you need to give to the church. It's not because the church needs the money. I mean, that may be true, but that's not why I'm telling you to give. I'm telling you to give for your own benefit because the way you break the power of money is through generosity. Money can't control you if you are willingly giving it up for no gain for yourself, right? You break the power that money has over you when you are generous. That's the reason God tells his people to be generous. Money can't control you if you're freely giving it away. And doing so forces you to put your trust in God and not in what you have in the bank. That's why it's so important to give. It's not about making sure the church can meet all of its financial goals. I mean, those things matter and they're important, but the reason to give is to make sure that your money does not control you. But as ubiquitous as the idolatry of money is, I wonder if maybe power has affected us more. I wonder if maybe it's even more subtle and more insidious than money is because most of us would think we have no power. But you know, we, we live in a part of the world that has been more or less controlled by Christianity for the last 500 years, 600 years. In the whole Western world, you look at all the things that make it distinct in, in history and in the modern world. The, the ideas of human rights and equality and liberty and, and, and all of the things that have set us apart that we have, we have made our highest ideals both here and in Europe and in places that are influenced by those cultures. All of those ideas come from Christian and Jewish thought. And... and Plenty of people who are, who are not Christian will try and say, no, 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 we got that from the Greeks and the Romans. But let me tell you, I have a philosophy degree. I've read all the Greek and Roman writings. They say those ideas come from, and they are not there. That is not at all how the Greeks and Romans thought. But it is how the Jews thought. It's how the apostles thought. It's how the early church thought. The, the level of, of moral and social and political power that the church has had in the West is unbelievable. And we're losing it. And boy, does that scare us. And you can see the effects of that idolatry of power in how we treat people. You can see it in how we sort ourselves into political tribes. And it's not a new thing. It's been happening for a while. 
The whole reason why there are separate white and black churches still is because for a very long time, white Christians saw black Christians not as their brothers and sisters in Christ, but as a political threat. That's why there are black churches. We're still doing it now with immigrants coming across the southern border who are overwhelmingly devout, deeply religious Christians. And yet, instead of seeing them as the body of Christ coming to us, we see them, if we're conservative, as a political threat and if we're progressive, as a political tool. All the time. And if we look to the rest of the world, we can see how this plays out. Despite all the fears that people have, the United States is still the most deeply religious of all the developed nations in the world. Mostly because of the non-white Christian communities that are still massive and active and powerful and deeply faithful. Whereas the European nations are now some of the least religious countries in the world. Despite the fact that for a long time, they were the centers of Christianity. But in those nations, Christianity was not separate from the government. Do you know why the Methodist Church took off in the, in the United States as quickly as it did? Because when the American Revolution broke out, all the priests from the Church of England went back to England because when they were ordained, they swore an oath of loyalty to the British crown because the British monarch is the head of the Church of England. And all across Europe, as, as governments and monarchies fell in the 19th and 20th century, the church fell with them and didn't really recover. Because in all of those nations, the church seized power and trusted in its political power more than in its God. For well over a thousand years, every monarch in Europe submitted to the authority of the church. The church controlled the continent. But it trusted far more in politics and militaries and economies than in the God it was supposed to worship. And look where that got it. By contrast, the churches that are growing far more rapidly than anywhere else in the world, the churches that are growing very much like the church did in Acts, those churches are in Africa and China. Places where they have no power at all and are actually deeply and actively opposed by the cultures around them. And in the case of the Chinese churches, are opposed by the government that's trying to wipe them out. Because they have to meet underground. But there are very likely more Christians in China than in the United States right now. Because it is growing so quickly. We have made an idol of power. And if you don't believe it touches you, let me ask you this. When was the last time you prayed for President Biden? Or if you're of the other persuasion, did you pray for President Trump while he was in office? Or do you prefer to only pray for the politicians you agree with? We have idolized power, often without even realizing it. The way to break the power of power 
is to love your enemies. To pray for those who persecute you just like Jesus told his people to. To show that level of mercy and grace and forgiveness to the people you don't want to give it to. Because you know that Jesus loves them too. Every idol requires a sacrifice. Maybe you sacrifice your marriage, your family, your morals, your character. But the longer we persist in any form of idolatry, the more we give it to it. And those idols have power over us precisely because we give it to them. The more we sacrifice in service to our idols, the more we have surrendered our power over to them. They are not impotent. They are not powerless. And the more power they have over you, the greater trouble they will cause you when you try to break free. It's inevitable. Just look at what happens as Paul leads large numbers of people free from the idolatry they've, they've submitted to their entire lives. The whole city rises up in an uproar. And, and for now, for now the, the authorities are on his side, right? They calm the people down because they recognize he's not broken any law. He even has a couple of moments where he gets arrested uh, and, and then is able to use his Roman citizenship to, to get himself out of jail and out of trouble. But eventually, eventually even the Roman authorities are going to start to pick up on the fact that he's not just challenging all the gods of these people. He's challenging, he's challenging the, the empire itself and the idolatry that the Roman people have formed around the emperor, who they claim is their god. That will eventually get him killed. We cannot afford to keep offering sacrifices to our idols because each time we do, we hand it a bit more power over us. Each time we do, we make it harder for ourselves to break free. Which means we have to be prepared for those idols to fight to keep us in their power. But thanks be to God, who can and will break their power over us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.